We have the privilege this morning to turn in our Bibles back to 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'd like to invite you to do that. The awesome privilege that we have to study the Word of God together, 1 Peter chapter 3. For the last couple of weeks, we've been studying 1 Peter chapter 3, specifically in verses 13 to 22, and I want us to read that portion of God's precious truth as we set our minds upon the study of that truth this morning. 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 13 and going to verse 22. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify or set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison." who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now this is the third part in this series of studies entitled, Suffering According to the Will of God. And I take that title specifically from 1 Peter 3.17, which says, It is better if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Peter says that if you do what is right, God may will it so that you suffer. And he goes on in 1 Peter 3, even going through chapter 4, verse 19, to detail what this suffering might look like. And the one and one of the most important elements of our lives as suffering Christians, which Peter wants us to fully understand, is how this relates to the preaching and the living out of the gospel. A gospel which he outlines for us in verse 18 of 1 Peter 3, and for which we studied in detail, very much so, last Lord's Day. We studied it in the context of the defense of our faith, even in the midst of suffering. For he says in verse 15 that we should always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that is in us, yet with gentleness and reverence. And then he tells us what that hope is in verse 18. And that is that Christ died for sins once for all time, the just for the unjust, so that He might give us access to God, Christ having been put to death and then raised again, quickened, made alive to new life, joining His body and spirit once again, and yet this time in a resurrected body. That's the gospel. A gospel which He gives to us in miniature. We're to defend the faith, to give an account for the hope that is in us, with gentleness for sure, with reverence or respect or humility, that's true, especially in the context given for us here 
against those who would slander us, those who would persecute us, those who would think by our living out and preaching this gospel that we might be evildoers. Don't forget that this is in the context of Peter's words in light of what we are going to study this morning in verses 19 to 20. All very important as we study the flow of this passage. Now you remember that I said last time that verses 19 and 20 are some of the most difficult words to interpret in all of the New Testament. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, Peter says that there are some things in the Apostle Paul's writings which are hard to understand. Well, I'm here to say in the text before us, there are some things hard to understand in Peter's writings. What does Peter mean when he writes verses 19 and 20? He says that Christ went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What does that mean? How do we understand these things? What is the point of Peter's words here? And furthermore, how does it relate to the gospel? And even in the larger context, how does it relate to suffering? What does it have to do with those things? Well, there are several interpretations of this passage. And in a group this size, all of them may be represented this morning. I don't know. But I do know that after the hours and days of study that I've had, and even the years, because this is one of the passages that I focused in on in some of my seminary studies, there are thorny problems, interpretive challenges, not just for myself, but for anyone who's trying to unlock all of the keys to understanding this passage. Now, suffice it to say, and I won't be going over each one of these, there are five, generally speaking, major ways that Bible interpreters, Bible teachers have understood this passage. And rather than going into detail into each one of them, giving you much needed rest from a long sermon, I want to summarize you for you what a couple of these are saying, because a couple of these are very, very compelling. Some of the rest of them don't appear to me, at least, to be that compelling. I simply want to, even though I'll mention a few of them briefly in the message, I want to tell you the one that I think is the general intent of the passage. And I want to give you some, what we might call, contextual markers that might indicate for us what may be the best way to understand what Peter is saying all the while, as I said before, trying to relevantly apply the, the overall context of this passage, and especially, of course, by way of secondary application, applying it to our own lives in the here and now. Now, of all of the various views, it seems to me that the most compelling, and I'll tell you right up front what I believe, the most compelling, or at least the one that seems to be, to me, the most persuasive, is one that sees Peter emphasizing the idea that just as Noah, Noah of old, Noah of Noah and the ark, just as he was preaching righteousness to his people, undergoing himself great persecution, I suppose, for doing so, so we ought also to preach righteousness in our own day, just as Peter is telling his readers, even in the midst of persecution and slander and suffering. That's what I think Peter wants us to know. He's using it, therefore, in an illustrative way. Noah becomes, for Peter, an illustration. Now, here's the problem. The thing that makes this so difficult is that Peter doesn't specifically refer to Noah's preaching per se. But he's actually referring to Christ's proclamation to spirits in prison yet during the days of Noah. And that's thorny. In fact, I read one commentator 
who in German said, and I won't quote the German, I'll just uh, tell you what it says, this is the unsolvable puzzle. Now, I don't suppose that I could tell you exactly what it means then if I tell you that it's an unsolvable puzzle. But maybe I can add a few pieces to the puzzle that would make it less unsolvable if that's possible. Maybe there's a way to understand this, possibly even in a way that most commentators don't understand it. But the view that I espouse this morning, the one that seems to me to be most persuasive, is not the majority view. It's a minority one. Now, many people, in trying to understand what these words mean, and I think possibly erring and do so, gravitate to that very phrase in verse 19 that says this, "...in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison." Now, you'll notice that word now is in italics, which means it's not in the New American Standard. It's in the New American Standard translation, but it's not in the original Greek text. That's okay, it's supplied for us, and I think probably it's best to see it that way. Spirits now in prison. But still yet, what does this mean? In which he made proclamation to the spirits in prison. Well, if you focus your interpretation hinging on the understanding of what that phrase means, spirits in prison, you might mess up. I think there are some other contextual keys here that help us in trying to understand the intent of this passage as a whole. Now, I think some of the great contextual markers are actually not in verse 19, but are contained for us in verse 20. And they are these, who once were disobedient. That means whoever these spirits in prison are or were... They were once disobedient. So we're talking about someone's disobedience. It also says in verse 20, a time marker, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So now we narrow it down even further. It's somebody's disobedience And it is when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. And so now we know that it's somewhere during Noah's time. Even further, Peter says, during the construction of the ark. That's even more definable for us. Although, obviously, that was some 100 or so years. Maybe even 120 years. Something, though, in that time frame was a disobedience, which Peter's referring to, when God's patience was waiting during that time frame. And then he says this, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. That gives us something else to go on. So when you study a Bible passage... You study not just one phrase and see it as possibly the key interpretive phrase. You have to take the whole thing and you have to break it down. And I'm persuaded that what Peter is doing here is he's using the preaching of Noah in Noah's own day that preceded the great flood upon the earth as an illustration for his readers of how they ought to see the persecution that Noah went through as an encouragement for what they are presently going through themselves in their own preaching of the gospel. It's as though Peter is saying this, in the midst of your own suffering... Remember what occurred in the days of Noah while he proclaimed righteousness to his people and while the great flood killed everyone else, God preserved eight persons and brought them safely through those flood waters. And Peter might go on to say, God will do the same for you. He will preserve you in the righteousness of your words and your actions as well. And you will be brought safely through in the ship of salvation from the waters of judgment. Now here's the difficulty with that view. It is a minority view. That means that a majority of Bible interpreters don't think that's compelling. So when you're up against trying to interpret something, 
It's easy to take the majority view because most people say that's the way it ought to be understood. It's hard to take the minority view. Now, lest someone think I'm taking the minority view or one of those minority views just because I want to take on the big boys, that's not true. It's easy to do one thing. It's hard to do another. And the difficulty is that Peter, even though in my thinking, using Noah illustratively, doesn't specifically refer to Noah's actual preaching, but Christ's own proclamation. That's what makes it difficult. It's referring to Christ preaching. You see it there in verse 19, in which also He, that's Christ, went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. Peter comes out of his articulation of the gospel in verse 18, which we went through in detail last time. And he says there in verse 19, linking it up with verse 18, there's a gospel and Christ proclaims that gospel. He went and made a preaching, a proclamation to those who were once disobedient in the days of Noah. And of course, one of the first things that someone might say is, But Christ wasn't there. He wasn't incarnated yet. So how could this be so? Well, I believe Christ was there. Christ is eternal. And Christ, I believe, was preaching through Noah. And He was preaching in the Spirit of Christ. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. That Christ was speaking through a man even in his pre-incarnate condition, even before the incarnation. And someone might say, that's pretty far-fetched. Well, it isn't at all far-fetched when you think about it. It actually, I believe, was Christ preaching through Noah during those days. And someone says, that's weird. You mean to say that Christ was present during the days of Noah and that Peter is suggesting that it's actually the pre-incarnate Christ who was preaching through Noah? Yes. I want you to take your piece of paper and I want you to write out a few interpretive reasons why I believe this to be the case. First of all, number one, this could also serve as our outline for this morning. Number one, Christ... Believe it or not, if you've listened very well in this study of 1 Peter, Christ has already been seen for us by Peter of having a pre-incarnate condition and even doing something, prompting something, prompting someone. You say where? Look in your Bibles at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. This gives us a little hint as to what Peter might be referring to here using Noah as his illustration and Christ preaching through him. Look at verse 10. Again, looking at a similar issue that is salvation. Verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets, that is the Old Testament prophets, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, that is those whom Peter is writing, the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time, notice this, the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Isn't that interesting? Peter has already given us an interpretive marker. And he says that the Spirit of Christ... Obviously saying it that way, the Spirit of Christ, because Christ did not have an incarnate body at that point, Old Testament prophets, were seeking through careful searches and inquiries to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ was to be revealed. But notice what it says, the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And if this can be the case, why would it be hard for us to understand that Christ would have been within Noah preaching through him? It's a very reasonable interpretation. Christ was in the Old Testament prophets, maybe not spatially within them, but he was 
prompting them, illumining them, granting them knowledge and wisdom by His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, showing them by being in them, prompting them, illumining them to the truth of His sufferings and glories which were to follow. And of course, we know hundreds of years, hundreds of years to follow. Christ prompted the Old Testament prophets to understand the predictive elements of His future coming and His glories. By the way, isn't that a great affirmation of the deity of Christ? Christ was before the Incarnation. He existed before the Incarnation. The Incarnation simply gave Him a body in which was housed His person while He was on earth. So it's not so far-fetched. The Spirit of Christ in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, which is talking about salvation, and the Spirit of Christ through Noah preaching. Notice in verse 18, this is a, a second interpretive key. It says there a reference to Spirit. You see, made alive in the Spirit. Now that, by the way, of course, is the first time in this little section that he mentions Spirit. And then the second time is in the very next verse. Spirits, that's the Greek word pneuma. One is in the singular, of course, and the other is in the plural. What is he talking about when he talks about spirit? Well, obviously, in verse 18, he's referring, that is, Peter, to the gospel and what happened in the embodiment of the gospel. What is the embodiment of the gospel? That Jesus Christ died, verse 18. He died for sins once for all. He was the just one, the righteous one, and He died for the unjust ones, the unjust many, so that He might bring us to God, give us access to God, take us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. What does that mean? Having been put to death physically, that means His body was given up. He gave up His body in death. You remember I said to you last time that Jesus said, I lay down my life and I will take it up again. He said, Father, into my hand, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit myself, my spirit. That's the death of Jesus Christ. But there's also, and we praise God for this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that is shown to us by that next phrase, but made alive in the Spirit. That means that there was a time when there was a quickening, that's that word made alive, there was a, a gathering together again, the body of Christ and the Spirit of Christ Together, Not like it was before, because before there was no resurrection. Now there is a resurrection, which means there's a resurrection body, a glorified body, a different body, a body that was much different than it was before. This is, this is a, a very, very major difference. And what Peter says to us, maybe, maybe in language that you and I might see as a bit foreign... You might say, well, why doesn't he just say the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Peter doesn't choose to do that. He wants to tell us about flesh and spirit. And that is, by the way, a very common, common New Testament theme. Paul talks about it. He talks about it in Romans. He talks about it in Galatians, several other passages. There's the idea that there are two realms of existence. The realm of the flesh and the realm of the spirit. The, the realm of the flesh is that which is earthly and physical. It's our bodies. And Christ, when He came, came in the realm of the flesh, Philippians 2. He took on to Himself the body of a man. And then there is the realm of the Spirit, that which is not earthly and physical, but that which is heavenly and spiritual. The realm of the flesh, the realm of the body, and the realm of the Spirit. And Peter wants us to know that, that the death of Christ included the death of his body, but he was made alive in the spirit realm. And when that occurred, there were spiritual authorities, spiritual rulers, spiritual kingdoms, 
that all came under the subjection of Jesus Christ. That's why he says what he says in verse 22. Who, Christ, through his resurrection, is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, we don't know a lot about this realm, the unseen realm. And frankly, if we did understand a little bit more maybe than what we do, it would probably scare the bejeebers out of us to know what's going on in the spiritual dimension with angels and demons and authorities and powers. And God protects us, I think, in many ways by not telling us all there is to know about that except one very, very major thing among others, and that is no matter what's happening because of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, His death in the flesh, His being quickened in the Spirit, He is at the right hand of God having ascended into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him. The cross dealt a death blow to Satan and his hosts, and there is nothing now they can do to thwart the plan of God. Christ is over all, in all. He's the head. And so, you say, what does that mean for anything? Well, what about the spirits? If Christ is the head of spirits... If he's the leader, the authority, angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him, maybe that's what that means there in verse 19. He, w- he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. And this is the majority view. The majority view is this. Now hold on to your hats if you've never heard this. The majority view is that what Peter is saying here in verse 19 with a corollary cooperation in verse 22 about Him being the authority of these heavenly beings, that what Jesus Christ did by His resurrection was that He took authority and therefore went and proclaimed the triumph, the victory of His cross work, His authority, to demon spirits that were in the days of Noah. That's what that majority view says. That's what Peter's referring to. And you know what? That could be true. That's plausible. A lot of good arguments for that. You look at Second Peter chapter 2. You look at Jude 6. You even look at Genesis 6. And you can construct a pretty formidable view, and that's probably why it's in the majority, that what is occurring here is an attestation that in the spiritual dimension, in the spiritual realm, Jesus Christ either while he was in the tomb, or in his post-resurrection, but before the ascension, somehow, spiritually speaking, in the spiritual dimension of things that we don't know, in the unseen realm, he went and he made proclamation to demon spirits to proclaim to them his victory over them by virtue of his death on the cross. Now, that's the majority view. In fact... We're not going to go into it, but in Genesis chapter 6, at the beginning, right in that context of talking about Noah, and that's why so many believe that it fits so perfectly, it talks about the sons of God going into the daughters of men. And Bible teachers have concluded, and they are right in this, that sometimes the phrase sons of God refers to not angelic beings, but men, sons of God. We're called the children of God. We're called sons of God. Christ is the Son of God. We are sons of God. But there are references in our Old Testament to sons of God being a reference not simply to men, not godly men, but to angels. For instance, in the book of Job, that's mentioned. Sons of God, referring not to human beings, but angelic beings. And so this this particular view goes, there was something that occurred in the first part of Genesis 6 where there were some angelic beings who were cast out of heaven by God and who wanted probably to pollute the human stream to defy God's work in bringing a Messiah, wanted maybe to pollute the human race by having demon spirits cohabitate with human women to pollute the stream of possible salvation through a Messiah coming 
by virtue of the birth of a woman, and through that there was birthed the Nephilim, that Hebrew word that means giants, and that somehow there was this half-demon, half-human creature that was produced by Satan's ploy to absolutely pollute the human stream so that Messiah would not be able to come through the birth of a woman. And there are people who say, if you look at Jude 6, you look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and following, and 1 Peter 3, verse 19, explicitly, you find references that carry it right back to the chronology of Noah and this very incident. Now that is a very persuasive argument, but I don't think it's the right one. There's a couple of reasons for that. First... Jesus tells us that with regard to angelic beings, they neither, what, marry nor are given in marriage. And so I don't think it's possible for an angelic being, even one who takes on a human form, and we do know from the Bible's teaching that there are angels who take on human form, by the way, always male forms. You remember the problem with Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah? There were There were angels who took male forms, and the homosexuals in Sodom and Gomorrah wanted to have relations with these angels. And Lot says, no, no, no. And then they pronounce these angelic beings a curse of blindness on the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. So they obviously were apparently attractive, desirable. They had a male form, and at least... Those men of Sodom and Gomorrah believed that there was opportunity to have some kind of sexual relations with them, even though it was a a repugnant kind of homosexual relationship. But it never says that that would be successful. It never says that that would be possible. And if Jesus' words are to be taken not just with regard to marriage, but the issue of a procreative act between angels and human beings, it seems to me that that's probably not possible. It appears to me as though in the spiritual dimension, and that's what we're talking about here, spirits, the the spirit of Christ and the spirits of men in prison, that we're not talking about the cohabitation of sexual relations which produce these uh, half-demon, half-human creatures. But what you really have in Genesis 6, in my opinion, is the sons of God, that is, a godly line of people, the godly line of Seth, cohabitating with women to to produce not giants in the physical sense, but men of renown, men of of great profundity, men of great wisdom. In other words, this is a godly thing that's going on in Genesis 6, that there was a a producing of this godly line. And of course we know that ultimately that godly line was reduced down to whom? Noah and his family. All right? That is at least a few reasons why I think that majority view really isn't ultimately tenable. There are many more arguments against it, but I'll suffice it to say, I think it's not a reference in Genesis 6 to cohabitation of demons and women. And so therefore, I don't think 1 Peter 3 is referring to that. You say, well, if you sort of knock down that part of the argument, then what do you have left? Well, here's what I have left. I believe what you have going on here in verse 19 is spirits, yes but not the spirits of angel beings, but the spirits of men. You say, well, is that ever listed in the New Testament? Yes. Book of Hebrews. The spirits of men made perfect. Just men made perfect. The New Testament has no problem referring to people as spirits. Many, many times that's mentioned, especially when they have died And they are now disembodied, disembodied spirits. In fact, that's the truth of everybody who has died before us. Their bodies have presently been separated from their spirits. If you died today and you're a believer, even if you're an unbeliever, your spirit is separated from your body. Your body goes to the grave. That's why for a believer, when we have a funeral service, we say, that's really just a body. That's a shell. That's not that person. 
their spirit, according to 2 Corinthians and other passages, immediately goes into the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body, Paul says, is to be present from the Lord. So it's not a problem for Peter to use spirits, pneuma in the plural, to refer to human beings, human spirits. That's why I think they're correct, the New American Standard Bible people, who put the word now there. He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. You see, they are spirits now. They weren't then. They were human beings. They had a body and a soul or a spirit. Soul and spirit being used interchangeably. They were being preached to. By the way, you see that word proclamation? It's, it's probably not correct at least in this context and with my view, to refer to it as a proclamation. It's kerux. It's the word normally that we'd use for preaching. I don't know why it would have to be translated this way as proclamation, because it's not a proclamation of triumph per se. It's a preaching, and I believe it's a preaching of the gospel. Because verse 18 just has given us the gospel. Jesus Christ died, He was buried, He was raised again from the dead. And now in the spiritual dimension, He is joined body and soul or spirit. That's the essence of the gospel, death, burial, and resurrection. And then Peter says, and there was also a preaching of this gospel. And here he comes in verse 19, sort of like a period, and then the beginning of another idea. It's an illustration. And he says, and by the way, I want to give you an illustration. And that illustration is this. Jesus Christ went, there was a going, and he made a preaching, a a proclamation of the gospel to the spirits who were in prison. You say, well, how does that happen? Through Noah. Through Noah. That's what I believe he's saying. Christ Jesus preached in his spirit through the person of Noah and his day. In other words, anytime anybody preaches, whether it's in an Old Testament context or a New Testament context or even what I'm doing today, it is a preaching by virtue of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is illumining the words of God in the preaching of God's Word. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says those who are spiritual are spiritually discerned or appraised. We preach the gospel and when we do it accurately and when we do it according to God's word, we're preaching in the spirit by virtue of the spirit of Christ. So it's not a problem to say I'm preaching in the spirit of Christ. Other Bible teachers, they teach in the spirit of Christ, the spirit of Christ prompting them, illumining them, guiding them. And he did it through Noah as well. He did it through the Old Testament prophets. We've already seen that. As to this salvation, the Spirit of Christ within them. That's what I think is going on here. Christ was preaching through Noah to the people of Noah's day. You say, what are some of those other contextual markers? Look at verse 20. Who were once disobedient. Now remember I told you it it had to be somebody who was disobedient. Now, yes, the two major views, I think, are one, human beings, or two, spirit beings, okay, angelic beings, demonic beings. They were disobedient. We know it's not angelic beings, right, because they weren't disobedient. So you only have two other categories, spirits who were angels who fell, or spirits who are the spirits of men. That's that's really the only two options, as I see it. They were once disobedient and maybe it would be better translated or rendered who formerly disobeyed it's people that he's referring back to in a bygone day they formally disobeyed and whoever these spirits were they formally at one time in the past disobeyed the lord and some as i said could see this very easily as demonic spirits instead of human spirits that's possible There's no reason to break fellowship over somebody who holds that interpretation, even the majority one. But don't jump on us who hold a minority view. could be that it's a human spirit, and both are referenced in Scripture. We don't substantiate either one. We could. But in this context, 
It could help determine the meaning. And whoever this is, we know that something is happening, according to Peter, in the spiritual realm. Its location is the earth, but what's occurring on the earth and upon the physical dimension is taking place on a much deeper level within the unseen spiritual realm. In other words, there's something happening that we we, we may not be able to see with our, our eyes, the human eyes. Something's going on here. Something's happening on a cosmic level with Christ who proclaims or preaches something. What did He proclaim? He preached. He preached through Noah. You say, well, is there another way to interpret that as a preaching through Noah? I believe so. Maybe not explicitly, but implicitly. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. I think he gives some more illustrations. And he even gives the illustration, possibly... Of the angels who sinned and were cast out of heaven in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. That's an illustration of of how God is committing judgment upon them. Verse 5. Another illustration, and God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, listen to this, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. You say, what's significant about that? That word preacher, guess what? That's that same word, karuks, same word family at least, preaching. That's the same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter 3.19. There was a proclamation, there was a preaching. And there was a preaching by Noah, a preacher of righteousness. And by implication, we can very easily say, I think, from verse 19, at least a plausible view, Jesus Christ preached through Noah a preacher of righteousness. Noah was doing it on a human level. Christ was indicating, prompting, illumining him from within to preach righteousness, right standing with God, the just for the unjust. That's what he was preaching through Noah. Same word, same word family. That's what Christ did. He preached through Noah, just as he was predicting prophetic utterances as the Spirit of Christ through the Old Testament prophets, which we read earlier. You know what we're really, really what we're seeing here? We're seeing an illustration of the great defender of the faith, the great defender, Noah. I mean, can you imagine? Put yourself in Noah's shoes. This may be why Peter did it. Put yourself in Noah's shoes. In fact, go, go to Genesis 6. We need to, we need to read that because that will illumine our understanding. This will tell us how bad it was. This may even give us insight into the slander and the persecution that Noah may, may have undergone, may have experienced. Folks, Noah was all alone. All alone as a preacher of righteousness. All alone. Look at verse 3. This is how bad it is. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. That's a marker that says, In 120 years the earth is going to end as they knew it. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow. Verse 6. The Lord was sorry, grieved that He made man on the earth and he He was sorrowful or grieved in His heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am grieved that I've made them. And then verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. One man and his family. One guy. One leader of his home. In the midst of how many people on the earth at that time? Just... Absolutely astonishing verse. Verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And he had these three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Apparently it was so corrupt 
so bad that God said the only way to cleanse this earth of the filling with violence and corruption was to wipe out the whole creation, including even creeping things, animals, everything. God said to Noah, verse 13, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy, to destroy them with the earth. I created the earth for them. Now I'm going to destroy them with the earth, the things of the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. And then he goes on to describe, this is exactly how I want you to do it. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Shocking. We don't know how many people on the earth. Maybe millions, millions and millions. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are clean, two, a male and his female, and the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. God's going to have a remnant both of people and of animals. After seven more days, I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. And because Noah was a righteous man, verse 5, Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. And by the way, if you think you're really tired, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Now he's a sprite, 600 Verse 7, Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. And as I believe, it was a cataclysmic, universal, earth-wide flood. And everything about our earth now has been affected by that flood. Now I see a lot of pretty things. And when I go around and I am in a beautiful spot and I look at all of these beautiful aspects of God's creation, I often remind myself and the people that are with me, this is all post-flood. Can you believe that? Can you believe what the, what the earth was like before the flood? Before the curse? And then can you understand the violence on the earth? The wickedness? By the way, because God says... My spirit shall not strive with man forever. No one should think that God has an inexhaustible patience with sin. He will ultimately deal with sin. Did you notice the chronology there? He says, I'm about to blot out man from the face of the earth. And he says, nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. You know what we call that? Grace. Grace. Enough time for Noah to build the ark, and in the building of the ark, both by the work of his hands and by the preaching of his mouth, he was preaching righteousness, and he said, warning, 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 righteousness from God, be right with God, be in a right relationship with God, serve God, love God, ask Him for favor. And there's another amazing thing. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but look back at, I think it's Genesis chapter 2. This may be why in Noah's preaching, people were saying, and this is my italics, you're crazy. You're crazy. What is an ark? What, do you, what, do you, what is an ark? What is that? What, what are you putting all those pieces of wood together for? Uh, what, what, what is this? You're telling us that there's going to be a time when God's patience is going to run out and God is going to destroy this earth with a flood. What's a flood? Well, it's, it's water. Well, what's going to happen to the water? Well, the water's going to come out of the sky, presumably, right? Because that's what rain is and that's what's happening right now. Rain is going to come out of the sky and God's going to destroy the earth and every unrighteous person. And it may be that they didn't have a clue what he was talking about. Because look at chapter 2, verse 6. And verse 5, back up to verse 5. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth. 
And there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist, uh, a covering, uh, a flow, some kind of mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Some geologists and hydrologists, you know, hydrologists are those who study water, water upon the earth, water pressure, water flow, geologists studying the earth itself. Several very competent among those would say that before Noah's time, there may not have been any such thing as rain coming down from the heavens to replenish the earth, but a mist from the ground, it says, covered the whole surface of the earth. Maybe in some kind of canopy-like fashion, where, where there, was, there was a heavens above, but there was a, a cultivation, sort of like a greenhouse effect. And the shrubs and the, and the animals and all of those living things, including human beings, had part of their sustenance from this mist that, are, that arose from the ground. And that may be all bound up, maybe, I don't know, maybe bound up in the idea that when Noah was preaching righteousness, people would say, you're crazy. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean there's going to be water from the sky? What do you mean there's going to be a flood on the earth? Or it may be that they were just generally... Apathetic. You know, if you ask somebody, is it apathy or indifference? And they might say, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't tell us exactly, but what we know is, Peter tells us, he says, during the construction of the ark. Do you see that in 1 Peter 3.20? During the construction of the ark. Noah was a preacher of righteousness during the construction of the ark. And Christ preaching through Noah was a preacher of righteousness, a herald. That's what Peter says in 2 Peter 2.5. He was a herald of righteousness. You better be right with God. He was a preacher. And boy, he was the ultimate defender of the faith because he was the only defender of the faith. He was the only one out there preaching the message. You know how some guys say, you know, the Elijah complex, I alone am left. He was the only one. He was alone left. That was it. That was God's plan. And boy, he must have been persecuted. He must have suffered. He must have been ridiculed. He must have been slandered. And maybe, just maybe, that was in Peter's mind as a great illustration for his own readers, when they also too are suffering and being slandered and reviled for preaching the gospel of 1 Peter 3.18. Maybe that's so profoundly in Peter's mind that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if this interpretation is correct, that Jesus Christ was preaching through Noah because it was a great illustration that there was suffering and persecution because possibly millions of people who've been told about this crazy guy over there building a boat for rain that hasn't even come and won't. You know, that's just like what Peter says in 2 Peter 3 when people say, where is the promise of His coming? All things continue as they are. It may be, look, we've got this mist, we've got this, this flourishing, we've got all the stuff that we need. Where is the promise of this judgment you keep telling us about? 100 years, 120 years, just preaching, working with his sons. Judgment day is coming. Someone says, yeah, but it's only Thursday. We've got Friday, we've got Saturday, we have Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We've got a lot of time. I don't have to do what you say. And then, is that the only point of... Peter, using this story, just preached judgment? In part, yes, but that's not all. Because remember, Peter is alerting his readers. He's writing to them to encourage them in their suffering with the message of hope. He says, for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Well, what's the hope? Because there's not a lot of hope in judgment. Well, it's not just judgment. That's for the unbelievers. What's the hope for believers? That's Noah. That's the eight persons. That's the hope. The hope of salvation. 
And that's why Peter ends there by saying, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Oh, that's the hope, folks. That's the hope. Yes, judgment is real. Yes, it's coming. Yes, Noah preached it. Warning, warning, warning. But God also gave a picture of the ship of salvation in the waters of judgment. There's hope. There's hope. They were brought, and I love this, safely through the water. They were saved physically and spiritually. And this may be the very reason for Peter including it here, to show that even in the midst of suffering and through Noah's reliance upon God, Christ preached through him, and even though no one repented because of humanity's utter wickedness, a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And if anybody's suffering persecution and slander in Peter's own day, this would be a great encouragement to know that God will save you and the ship of salvation through the waters of judgment, through the Christ of the gospel. I think it does quite well as an interpretation. Listen to Wayne Grudem, who adopts this view, and I think takes a very fine approach, working his way through many of the hazards. Listen to what he says. There are several remarkable parallels between the situation of Noah before the flood and the situation of Peter's readers. One... Noah was in a small minority of believers surrounded by a group of hostile unbelievers who were perhaps even persecuting him. The readers are also a small minority and are surrounded, that is Peter's readers, by hostile unbelievers who make the threat of persecution very real. Number two, Noah was righteous. Peter exhorts his readers to be righteous in a similarly difficult situation. Three, Noah witnessed boldly to the unbelievers around him, preaching repentance and warning of judgment soon to come. Similarly, Peter exhorts his readers not to fear, but to bear witness boldly, even in suffering if necessary, in order to bring others to God, just as Christ was willing to endure suffering in order to bring us to God. Peter also sounds a clear warning of judgment to come, which makes the reader's situation prior to judgment similar to that of Noah. Fourth, Christ, though he was in an unseen spiritual realm, was preaching through Noah to the unbelievers around him. Similarly, Christ is working in an unseen spiritual way in the lives and hearts of Peter's readers. Thus, Peter, by implication, is reminding his readers that if Christ was preaching through Noah, he certainly is also preaching through them as they bear witness to the unbelievers around them. Five, in the time of Noah, God patiently awaited repentance from unbelievers, but finally did bring judgment. Similarly, at the time Peter is writing, God is patiently awaiting repentance from unbelievers. Second Peter 3.9, God is wishing that none perish, but all come to repentance, but will certainly bring judgment on the unrepentant. Second Peter 3.10. Sixth and finally, Noah was rescued with a few others. Similarly, Peter reminds his readers that they too will be saved even if their numbers are few for Christ has certainly triumphed and they will share in His triumph as well. He says the attractiveness of this view is thus enhanced by its clear compatibility with the context at several points. It fits well with Peter's purpose of encouraging suffering believers that they need not fear to be righteous and to bear faithful witness to the hostile unbelievers surrounding them for Christ is at work in them as he was in Noah and they like Noah will certainly be saved from the judgment to come. He ends that section by saying, in fact, it is the remarkable similarity between the situations of Noah and of Peter's readers which best explains why Peter, in reaching back to the Old Testament for an encouraging example, selects the incident of Noah preparing the ark. Far from being surprising or unusual, this example is contextually quite appropriate. I think he's right. Listen to how Donald Guthrie says it. The context mentions spirits in prison and their former disobedience and connects them with the flood. Some see here a proclamation to the dead, but there is no statement to this effect in the passage. It is highly improbable that the passage refers to the preaching of the gospel to give the unbelieving dead a second chance. That's, by the way, another interpretation. That what God was doing was Christ proclaimed another chance to spirits who didn't have the opportunity or rejected the opportunity while they were alive and Christ was proclaiming to them so they'd get a second chance. That's one of those views I say I reject wholeheartedly. 
No other New Testament passage would support this suggestion, Guthrie says. The word preaching certainly favors a preaching of the gospel rather than a proclamation of judgment. No interpretation, however, which does not relate it in some ways to Noah's time and that does not have some relevance to Peter's readers is satisfactory. It would, however, seem most reasonable to suppose that the preacher was Christ The preaching done in Noah's generation. In this case, the spirits in prison are those condemned for disobedience in the time of the flood and the ark. A divine instrument of salvation was the means through which Christ preached to them in time past. So why do you quote those two long quotes from those two guys? Just to show you that I'm not so far-fetched after all. This is is a credible thing here. And I think this is probably doing justice to all the relevant issues. You say, well, what does this have to do with my life? Let me ask you a question as we close. Are you in the ship of salvation? Are you in the ship of salvation? There are rushing waters of judgment that await. And when you come to die, it's too late. It's too late. Get on the ship of salvation right now. Right now. Flee to that door before the door is shut. Come to Jesus Christ because He died for sins once for all, once for all time. The just for the unjust. That's us. In order that He might give us access to God, would bring us to God because He died in His body but was rejoined in His resurrection in the spiritual realm to preach. And guess what? He's preaching through me right now. Right now. Repent and believe. Get in the ship. Judgment waters are coming. Let's pray. Father, we may not be suffering, as it appears many, if not most, of Peter's original readers were, but Lord, it appears that whether suffering is here or not, we must in our own lives, suffering or no, get on the ship of salvation before the coming waters of judgment. Lord, we believe and we repent. Jesus Christ is the one who died for sinners. He's the one who is the just, the righteous one. And He substituted for the unrighteous many. And that He was put to death bodily, but was raised immortally. And as he preached through Noah, righteousness and judgment, he preaches through us even today. Lord, I pray that no one would leave this place without the full confidence and assurance that they're on the ship of salvation. And as the waters of judgment rise, we'll be brought safely through. I'd like for you to spend a moment Assessing where you yourself are spiritually? Do you acknowledge that in the spiritual realm things are happening on a a cosmic level that transcends what's happening in this earthly tent of ours? Do you recognize that right now, spiritually speaking, the Lord has impacted your heart, convicted you of sin? brought you to a place of brokenness. And you, like Noah, want to find favor, grace in the eyes of the Lord.
call out to Christ. Ask Him for mercy. Ask Him to begin a a new work in you that only He can. Lord, we thank You for a time of examination and we pause for that now for each individual person to seek Your favor. Lord Jesus, I pray that through Your atoning death, Your substitution for the unrighteous many, that we will be brought safely through the waters of judgment. Let no one hear these words of mine and say no to the cross. Thank you, Father, for meeting us here. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.